Well, I'd like to read with you from Genesis 18 and 21. We're going to focus on the first 12 verses of Genesis 21 uh, as we kind of look to Sarah and her response to the birth of a promised son, a covenant son, who was one of those in the line of Christ in his earthly family. But first I'd like to read with you from Genesis 18, which gives us some helpful uh, background to that account. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to, the, to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. And then turning over to chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham, was circum Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have, I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and he sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved sons and daughters of God in Christ, the name Sarah means princess, and the name Isaac means he laughs. In the light of this text from Genesis 21, I always thought those names were somewhat ironic, since in this passage, Sarah seemed to act like anything but a princess. And Isaac seemed to be the occasion not so much for laughter as for tears and strife. That's the impression I always had of this text. But I was wrong. You see, it's easy to read this passage from a purely humanistic standpoint. In fact, many Bible scholars read it this way. If we consider only the sinfulness of humanity as we typically encounter it. This passage looks like a tragedy. We see a longtime wife apparently jealous of the younger woman who now has a relationship with her husband. We see the love of a mother apparently leading her to evict a woman of lower stature and her son with no regard for what will come of them. We see a man whose heart is divided between his longtime wife and one of his sons. We see a teenage boy seemingly robbed of his inheritance and his place in the family. That's what we see if we look at this text from a purely humanistic standpoint, without regard to the broader context. But listen, that reading is wrong because there is a broader context. And because this doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in the context of God. And his covenant promises. His promises from all the way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham. That he would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. His covenant promises to Eve that we considered last week. How through her would come a son who would crush the head of the serpent. We have the context of his promise to Abraham and to Sarah a year before Isaac's birth and the significance of that son as expressed in Genesis not just 18 but also 17. And we have the context of the New Testament which in 1 Peter 3 tells us that Sarah was not a bitter and uncaring woman but rather was a godly woman whose behavior and whose attitudes are to be commended to godly women today who can emulate her if they live before their husbands with faith and without fear. And the context of Galatians 4, verse 29, which recalls this exact situation and commends Sarah for it and says that not only was she right to do this, but she was discerning in what she did. So it's in the light of Scripture itself that we have to interpret this passage. And when we do... We see that what's happening here is that God is preserving His covenant line through Sarah, one of the early mothers of Christ. And so that's our theme. God preserves His covenant line through Sarah, a mother of Christ. And in 
revealing that, he shows Sarah, first of all, as a mother who joyfully celebrates God's grace in sending a son. Our passage begins with verse 1 declaring the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. You notice there the emphasis on what preceded, what God had said, what God had promised. That takes us back to earlier chapters, to Genesis 17, when God appeared to Abram and made him Abraham, the father of many. In that passage, God confirmed his covenant with Abraham, gave him the covenant sign of circumcision as a sign of of entrance into the covenant, much like our baptism. And he promised Abraham as an inheritance the land of Canaan for his children. The Lord also at that time changed Sarai's name to Sarah and said that he would bless her and give Abraham a son by her. From Sarah, from her offspring, would come nations of people. She would become the mother of kings. And Abraham was shocked. Didn't even know how to process that, given his age, given their situation. But nonetheless, he believed the Lord, as we heard in Romans 4. And he obeyed, demonstrating his faith by by his obedience. He circumcised himself and, and all of the males of his household. And then we come to Genesis 18. The Lord visits Abraham in bodily form along with two angels. And again, he reiterates to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. I'm going to return in a year and Sarah will be nursing a child. Sarah hears that and she laughs, incredulous. Really? I'm 90 years old almost. But what does God say? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And now a year has passed. And God has done exactly what he said. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Folks, what we read in that sentence is absolutely amazing. I mean, remember... Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born. Ninety-nine-year-old men do not father children. That's not the way the human body generally is allowed to work. So even after God told him that, it had to come as a, a shock, a delight. And Sarah was 90 when he was born. She had long since given up the hope of having children. She was, she was at an age where all her peers, her friends were having grandchildren, great-grandchildren born to them. It's not that they didn't want children. Understand that. In that age and that culture, especially, children were regarded as a rich blessing from the Lord. Folks delighted to have children, and they were generally regarded as being under God's curse if they didn't have them. Not to mention, just practically speaking, there was no social security, there were no investment plans and portfolios. Your children were your retirement plan, generally speaking. So they had longed for children for years. But in God's providence, they had been withheld. Now finally, finally, at 90 years old for Sarah and 100 for Abraham, they welcome their child. 
And as God had commanded, they named him Isaac, which means he laughs. The name is a response and a reminder that when God told Abraham in Genesis 17, when God told him that he would have a child by Sarah, he laughed, incredulous and amazed. When he repeated this as recounted in Genesis 18, Sarah laughed with scorn, with unbelief. So the Lord said, you'll name him Isaac. You'll name him, he laughs, to remind you. This is not what you expected. This is not what you believed possible. But this is what I promised. That it might be clear that I have done this. That this came at my command, at my power. Despite Sarah's earlier laughter. And please understand, what we read in Genesis 18 reveals that Sarah had a moment of a crisis of faith. She laughed. Because she didn't believe initially. And God says to to Abraham, why did she laugh? Is anything too hard for God? And Sarah says, no, 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 I didn't laugh. He says, yeah, you did. Yes, you did. But despite her earlier laughter, God showed himself faithful. And understand that that's what Isaac was. He was a demonstration of the faithfulness of God. He was a demonstration that God was faithful to Abraham and Sarah. Exactly what he had promised time and time and time again, he did. He brought forth a child through whom the covenant promises would be established. He brought that child from physically from Abraham and from Sarah at a time when it seemed impossible. Because God's word is always true and faithful. It doesn't matter what the science says. It doesn't matter what the biological textbooks say. What God says holds true. Let every man be a liar. God was showing himself faithful to his promises to them and also to his covenant promises. The Lord said that the covenant line would pass through Abraham and Sarah and that's exactly what would happen. He would not be content with halfway. Years before, a few years before, about a decade, they grew impatient. They realized that Sarah was beyond the years of childbearing, but they longed for those covenant promises that God had assured them were coming. And so they took matters into their own hands. They took a slave girl from Egypt named Hagar, and they used her as a surrogate. Abraham would have a child through her, and they would count this child as theirs. We're sometimes tempted to do that kind of thing. To say we know what God promised, but it doesn't seem to be happening in the time that we expected. So we're going to do what we need to do to make that happen. But what's, what's that really saying? It's saying God needs some help. God doesn't seem to have this under control. I need to give him an assist. That's what they were doing with the son born of Hagar named Ishmael. And with the birth of Isaac, God says, no, I didn't need the help. I was not incapable of fulfilling my promises. That's a good lesson for us. Sometimes we wonder, we remember when our children were brought up here and baptized and how God spoke that promise over them. I will be God to you and to your children after you. Calling them to faith, 
to confidence in his gospel, calling us to train them up in the way of the gospel, but calling us too to trust in his promises. And then they hit a rebellious streak. And we wonder whether God has forgotten. We wonder whether we need to do something to bring it about, something to manipulate it, whether we need to bribe them, whether we need to sweeten the pot somehow. We can't do that. Only God can fulfill God's promises. That's something he's showing here. Only God can fulfill God's promises. Not through Ishmael will the covenant line be brought, but through Isaac, through the child he promised and he brought. God is also fulfilling his promise to Eve here. He promised that a son from her line would crush the serpent's head. Isaac's not that son, but it's through his line that that son would be brought, because that son is Jesus Christ. And he's showing himself faithful in so many smaller ways. He's showing himself faithful to forgive Sarah for her mocking laughter. He's showing himself faithful to bless this family that had been impatient in such a powerful way. He's showing his faithfulness to love and preserve his people even when they show themselves weak, even when they stumble. And so now, seeing God's faithfulness in this child in her arms, Sarah celebrates God's grace in sending a son. Strengthening her faith, reminding her that God can do whatever God ordains, and He will do whatever He promises. Sarah celebrates the coming of this child, and so should we. Because how often... How often we wonder, why would God allow this to happen? Why would God allow this diagnosis? Why would God allow this rebellion? Why would God allow this strife? Why would God allow, you name it. And we want, we want to question. We want to think that maybe it's out of control. Maybe God needs our help. Maybe He's not really... That's blasphemy. God knows what He's doing. Every bit of it is in His control. He's even able to use the rebellion and the sin of men. He doesn't lead them to that. He's not responsible for that. But yet He's so sovereign, He uses that to fulfill His perfect plan. That's amazing. That is absolutely as amazing as the birth of a child from a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man. And we should delight in that. We should delight in the fact that God is always faithful. How many of you who sit in these pews as adults remember a time where your parents wrung their hands and wondered what you were thinking? Quite a few of us. If you don't believe it, ask your parents how many late nights they spent praying for you. And yet God was faithful to draw you in. That doesn't justify the the period of rebellion you went through, the sins that you committed, but it does demonstrate the faithfulness of God who is far greater than our sins, than our unbelief, than our weakness, than our failures. 
And we ought to celebrate that. We ought to rejoice in that. Don't celebrate the sins and the rebellion you went through, but celebrate that God loves you anyway, and that He drew you back anyway, and that He was faithful to those promises despite the fact that you deserved His scorn. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? And isn't that worth celebrating? But of course, God, wherever God establishes peace, Satan wants to establish warfare, where God brings forth a fulfillment of the promise, a cause for rejoicing, Satan sends a terrorist. And that's what we see in the second half of our text. As Sarah is joyfully celebrating God's grace in sending a son, Satan is raising up a proud persecutor, who will threaten the Son, who will seek to quench the joy of God's people. But that plan failed because Sarah was a mother willing to jealously guard the Son from Satan's proud persecutor. And that's our second point. Now understand that the persecutor in question, as is often the case with terrorists, had been in place, had been embedded long before. I mentioned Abraham and Sarah's impatience, their crisis of faith, and their plan to use Hagar as their surrogate to bring forth a child. But, but marriage was designed at the start to be a union, an inseparable, unbreakable union between one man and one woman. And any time we break that, it hurts, doesn't it? They thought they knew better. They thought they could... Create a workaround that would kind of help God out. And almost immediately it started to backfire. Right? As soon as Hagar became pregnant, Sarah became jealous. As soon as Hagar became pregnant, she became proud. Suddenly Abraham finds himself the rope in a tug of war. There's strife. In the family of the covenant, the child is born, but very soon after, God reminds Abraham, no, 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 that's not the one. That's not the covenant child. He's in the covenant. He's circumcised along with Abraham, but he's not the child of the covenant through whom the promise would be brought. So it didn't go well. And yet the child is in Abraham's household. They managed to maintain some semblance of peace. And it wasn't until 14 years later that God visited Sarah and she gave birth to Isaac. Well, now we're two or three years beyond that. Ishmael is a young man, 16, 17 years old. Isaac is two or three, newly weaned, and the absolute delight of his father Abraham. In fact, Abraham threw a feast to celebrate the fact that he had been weaned. He was smitten with this child and with the fact that he was special because of God's promises. But Ishmael didn't take well to that. After all, he was the firstborn. He ought to be, in his belief, the apple of his father's eye. And here they are making all of this fuss about little Isaac, who can't even read yet, who can't even dress himself yet. Ishmael was laughing, verse 9 says. But it says this in a particular way that reveals this wasn't funny ha-ha laughter. This wasn't the celebratory laughter of Sarah. This was mocking 
laughter, insulting laughter. And the verb form that's used there says that it was continual. This wasn't a one-time thing. What Sarah witnessed was a pattern of mockery, a pattern of derision that demonstrated a, a persecuting scorn. In fact, in fact, Galatians 4 tells us that this was an act of persecution that she witnessed. That demonstrated that not only was he ill-inclined, as an older sibling sometimes might be to a younger one, this wasn't just a, the annoyance of a teenager for his late-coming sibling. It wasn't that. This was a persecution and a hatred of one who is opposed to God and sees one who is chosen of God. And Sarah was given the wisdom and the insight to recognize that. Her response is swift. She sizes up the situation, recognizes that Ishmael is a threat, and she calls for his removal, not from the house, not from the family, but from the whole region. She wanted Ishmael and his mother gone because she wanted the child of the covenant preserved. As her reason, she tells Abraham, verse 10, The son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now, again, I used to read that and think, well, that is a mama bear act, right? That is selfishness and greed. Because in that culture... When a man died, his belongings, his possessions, his property were all divided among his children. But the firstborn got twice as much as all the rest, right? So if you've got two kids, the first one gets two parts, the second one gets one. He gets two-thirds, the other gets one-third. But that's not what's happening here. Do we really think... That Sarah was concerned about who was going to get Abraham's tent and his livestock? Who was going to take possession of great-grandpa Nahor's cane? No. This jealousy that she expresses here is not a matter of pettiness or being a mama bear. It's not born of greed or covetousness. When she saw Ishmael mocking, she saw Ishmael's heart. And it was the heart of one who hates God. It was the heart of one who opposes God's purposes and plans. She saw the heart of a young man willing to insult and oppose God himself with ease. And who therefore was a threat, not just to her little son, but to the covenant plans and purposes of God himself. We see this throughout history. Revelation 12 says that that great dragon, that great beast who is Satan, he sought throughout history to prevent the birth of the promised child of Eve. And that is what this is. He was seeking, Satan was using Ishmael to seek to prevent the coming of Christ. Because God had ordained that it would be through Isaac that the covenant would be brought and therefore through Isaac that Christ would be born, ultimately. Ishmael's laughter was the first tremor of a mighty earthquake that would have destroyed the covenant line. God gave Sarah the ability to see that. And we know that, not because we're taking guesses, 
but because of how God responded. Look at how God responds. Verse 12. God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. He understands. Abraham has a divided heart. This is his child, right? He doesn't want to send his son away. He doesn't want to abandon his son any more than any father would. But he says, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. That tells us that God's using Sarah. God has ordained for Sarah to give this command, this urging. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Again, this isn't just about an inheritance. This is about the inheritance. This is about the covenant. This is about our eternal inheritance. And the line was to come not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. And therefore, Isaac must be preserved. Isaac must be protected. God assures him, I have plans for Ishmael. I'll protect him. I'll care for him. Nations will come of him also. But you know what? If we follow those nations throughout history, we find that they are the ones who have opposed Israel throughout the ages. And they are part of the foundation today of modern Islam. Which opposes what? Israel, which by the way is no longer the covenant nation in so far as they live in unbelief. But yet, they are the physical descendants of Abraham. They are the physical descendants of Isaac and therefore they are hated. And who else do the Muslims attack and hate and seek to destroy? Christians. Because they are the offspring of the covenant. Sarah saw far more than we might have thought. Because she recognized in Ishmael the seed of the serpent who sought to destroy the son. God says, do what she says. And Abraham responds in faith. He stops protesting Sarah's counsel immediately the very next morning. He sends Hagar and Ishmael away. And he does well in doing so because he's obeying God. Now understand the implications of Sarah's jealous guarding of her son from this proud persecutor. First of all, we see there that not all who are from Abraham receive the covenant blessings promised to Abraham. Ishmael was circumcised. He was a member of the covenant. But that doesn't mean that he was elect. By his unbelief, he rejected the covenant, and therefore he rejected all that God had promised. That's a tragedy. That's a terrible thing. And yet, at times, it happens. And we should recognize that God is sovereign also there. Along with that, we see that those who reject the covenant hate those who are blessed by it. Ishmael refused to love and trust and devote himself to the Lord. That was the root cause of his hatred of Isaac. Because he hated God, therefore he hated the one whom God sent. Ishmael was opposing God's plan and ultimately opposing God himself. Because the blessing was to come through Isaac. And so his hatred of Isaac was a hatred of God. Sarah did well to guard the line of the covenant as she did. Even though she had to know it would look bad. That just occurred to me last week. Sarah had to know 
that generations of people would look at what she did and say, what a petty, jealous, selfish woman. But she did it anyway in obedience to God. When we discipline our children, we're not doing it because we want them to shut up. We're not doing it because we want life in our house to be easy or we want little servants. We're doing it so that they will learn that disobedience of God hurts, right? And that God disciplines us for our good and so we need to learn to follow Him without question. That's why we discipline our children. But people outside the church, people outside the covenant, they look at that and they say, that's abusive. How dare you? You don't love your children or you wouldn't hit them. Right? But we obey despite their scorn. When we practice church discipline, people outside the covenant think it's so mean. Why don't you just let them be happy? Do what makes them happy. Do what they feel like. Why do you have to intervene in their life? And we know that they're going to look down on us. We know that they're going to scorn us. We need to do it anyway. Because obeying God is far better, infinitely better, than receiving the commendation of men. We need to follow after Sarah's footsteps, doing what is right in God's sight, regardless of what people say. And we can have the confidence that Sarah had, that God will uphold His promises, that God will bless His people, and that through our faith-driven obedience... God will not just bless us, but those in our care. Sarah was a guardian of the entire line of Christ. That's amazing. God commended her for it. Again, in Galatians 4, in 1 Peter 3. And he commends her as an example for us. When God calls us to act, we need to act regardless of what other people think, regardless of how it might look. And we need to trust that He will bring forth all of the outcome. He will bring forth all of the blessing that He has promised because He is absolutely faithful. To God be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so amazingly blessed to know you and your faithfulness, to hear your promises and to recognize that they come to us. Lord, we are weak, short-sighted, far too easily swayed by the opinions of men. Make us to be strong of faith. Make us to be the true offspring of Abraham and Sarah who trusted you despite what their eyes said, who followed you despite what people would think and who did so with the confidence that you will fulfill the promises you make to us. Lord, we pray that you would use us as your faithful servants, bringing forth your purposes through us despite our weakness. Be with us in the remainder of this day, we pray. Enable us to serve you, to honor you, to confess you with boldness. In Jesus' name we pray it, amen.